We all know data can be complex. Communicating it to an audience in a way that is understandable while still full of research nuance and rigor is sometimes a challenge. This becomes even more so when that data is connected to a controversial topic, say the debate over vaccination, for example. One way to bridge that gap is to use data in storytelling, helping audiences get to the meat of an issue without bogging them down too much in the technical details. Communicating complicated data stories to a general audience is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Today's guest is data researcher Nick Team. Team is a research fellow at the University of California Hastings Institute for Innovation Law, where he explores artificial intelligence regulation, cybersecurity, and pharmaceutical patent trolling. He was also the American Statistical Association's 2017 Mass Media Fellow, writing about science, tech, and stats for Slate Magazine. Thanks for being here today, Nick. Thanks a ton for having me on. I know you're also involved in an ASA effort to launch a blog designed to communicate to a broad audience. Where does your interest in communicating data come from? Yeah, that project, the StatsBite project, is actually really, really exciting. Uh, And I think it ties in closely to my interests. So I came from Carnegie Mellon, is where I did my undergrad. Uh, And for a long time, I had this conception, I think, of statistics as being sort of a dry field and a field that didn't lend itself nicely to storytelling. Uh, I had a professor, Cosma Shalizi, who would give us assignments sort of like, here's the data set, tell us something about it. Um, And I struggled at first because I think I was taking a very robotic approach to it. And as The semester went on, I sort of started to realize that the fun of the projects and also the best use of them was to try and not just say something about the data, but say something about it in an interesting and narrative way. Uh, And I guess ever since that course, I've wanted to communicate interesting subjects in interesting ways. And it seems like data storytelling is a useful way to go about that. At least a natural question. What's been your favorite data story that you've told so far? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so there's a couple of them. I, funny enough, one of my favorites is one that didn't really get very much buzz and ended up being sort of small. So I wrote, um, when I was at the University of Maryland, I was working with a professor, Nick Diakopoulos, who's now um, I think at Northwestern. And so we worked on a project looking at gentrification in Washington, D.C. That's obviously a huge issue and something that's happening not just in D.C., but in a lot of cities. One of the things we wanted to take into account was that right now the measurements of gentrification happen pretty slowly, right? Like it takes time for building permits to get approved. It takes time for Starbucks to get built on the corner. Um, But something that can be measured much faster are, say, changes in Wi-Fi speeds Mm -hmm. or the building of capital bike shares. If you know anything with DC, it's a bike sharing program. Um, So these like new, I don't know, innovative type changes happen much quicker than the older measures of gentrification. So what we did is we took a lot of open data uh, that DC 
kudos to them makes available um, and analyzed it across different census tracts in D.C. And what we're able to see is that if you use these technological gentrification indicators, it sort of predicts the brick and mortar gentrification. And it was interesting to see that you could actually sort of get out in front of brick and mortar gentrification by looking at this tech gentrification, because at least in my eyes, after all, the point of that work and, you know, of data stories is to make a difference. So if you can figure out when gentrification is occurring before it occurs, then I think you're in a good place to combat it. So what, what's been the hardest data story you've, you've tried to tell? The one that you struggled the most to, to, to tell that narrative? I, funny enough, that's an easier one. Uh, I think it was the, <laughs> the p-value story, actually. Uh, um, right. So I think one of the hardest things for scientists going into science journalism is talking about the things you know well right? Because Mm -hmm. you're talking to people who don't necessarily know these ideas so well. That would be me. So what's a a (laughs) p-value? Yeah. So if you want to put it sort of colloquially, right, it is, um, it can give you the evidence of having seen something as extreme as what you saw uh, watching data or seeing data as extreme as what you saw under um, some previously specified hypothesis. Um, so the example that I used or ended up using was this uh, drug example, right? If I have two drugs and I posit that they have the same effect on some disease, well, the p-value I'll get is the probability of having observed the difference in effectiveness as large as I saw, given that there was no difference. And all the assumptions for the methods that you're using and applying. And so that's all the subtlety that goes with that as well. Yeah. John, John's question has got, got at sort of the heart of what you're trying to do, which is fairly unusual. I think John and I know this because we've been working at this for a long time. But you're in this sort of territory between stat- statisticians and journalists or between the numbers and and the narrative. So just in general, how do you... What do you think the challenges are there? What obstacles have you faced, both from statisticians, that community, and from the journalistic community? When you start talking about data storytelling, for many people, those are two words that don't belong together. I think the biggest struggle I've found, and I think this sort of ties in the struggles or the pushback that I've seen both from the journalism world and the science world, is trying to strike a balance between, I think, rigor and entertainment. Mm -hmm. I think this is broad in terms of, I think this applies to science journalism, to statistics, to data-driven stories, all of these things, right? Because the goal, I think, one of the goals of data storytelling, right, is you're trying to communicate information. Um, Science journalism, the same. But if the only goal of it was to communicate the raw information, then, you know, you would go read the abstracts of science articles instead of reading the story in The New York Times. Right. So I think trying to find that balance is hard, is really hard. And, you know, with data, funny enough, I was listening actually to the episode um, of this show with Alberto Cairo. Oh, um, yeah, which was phenomenal and it, Definitely intimidating for me to try and come at that. <laughs> but he was talking about the five things he thinks make a data visualization successful. 
And two of them, right, beauty and functionality, seem to be really applicable to data stories as well. Mm -hmm. I think that that same trade-off of rigor and beauty is the exact same trade-off, or at least it is to me, that he was talking about in data visualizations. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, data storytelling. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism, and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is data researcher Nick Team. Now, Nick, you wrote a piece for BuzzFeed that was talking about the issue of doxing, um, which has been in the news off and on for a while um, and I think is a very complicated issue. Uh, and I think that you did a really nice job of kind of explaining um, what doxing is and how it works and sort of how organizations like Twitter try to figure out ways of uh, curbing doxing, even though it's kind of out of their control. Um, how do you approach reporting a story like that, writing a story like that, thinking about so as someone who has studied statistics and has studied data, but if you're trying to communicate it to a lay audience, how do you approach telling that story? I think I approach it I try to approach it at least from the perspective of whoever is, I guess, suffering at the hands of doxing, or at least that's how I tried to approach that one. Doxing at its core, you're taking someone's personal information that they don't want made public and you're making it public for them. That's a huge violation. So it felt like the most important thing I could do with that article was one, not take more of people's private information and make it public, right. uh, but two, report that story in a way that made it clear the dangers of doxing, but also the responsibility and the ability that companies like Twitter have to stop it, right? Uh, I, I think especially there's been news coming out saying that Twitter is going to, I think on December 18th, start enforcing their harassment rules differently. Right. Right. So it, it, it's clear that they have this ability, right? And, you know, kudos to them for doing it. But I, I tried to approach the story from a perspective that hopefully uh, made that clear, that this was their responsibility and that they could actually address it. I enjoyed your story on, on the poor people don't eat more fast food. <laughs> that, you know, sort of talking about the, the idea that, that the that's influencing consumption was was an income, but hours work. And I thought that's that was that was a nice piece. And my my question to you is just: Could you talk through kind of the the flow of where you started in terms of a, a research study, and then how you extracted the, the the story that you wanted to tell, and then ultimately how you packaged it for this 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 piece in Slate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, so it all started. That was the, I think, the Ohio State article by the researcher Jay Zagorski, and it started from that article. I happened to stumble on his work. He's a very interesting researcher. In the past, he wrote an article talking about how the freshman fifteen was a, a fiction. Uh, so he sort of specializes, it seems like, in these counterintuitive or dispelling myths, rather. I think, which fits very well with Slate. Uh, so I stumbled on that article. And as soon as you know, I saw that headline, it was clear that it would fit well for a Slate-type piece. I guess this sort of ties in with uh, the Twitter answer a little bit. The idea there, or the you know, grounding principle, was that, again, we have this narrative we tell ourselves. There are people who are being affected by what we're telling ourselves. In this case, you know, lower SES people who we assume 
are eating fast food because we, to some degree, look down on fast food and look down on lower SES people. So the important part of that story and what I tried to keep in mind while I was writing it was that dispelling the fiction about fast food consumption was to some degree also trying to dispel a fiction about how we look at lower SES people. Yeah, I tried to keep that in mind while I was writing the article. Something that strikes me as I'm listening to you talk about both the BuzzFeed article and the the fast food article is that your focus is seems to not be on the data, but on the people. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's fair. And I actually, I don't know, I, I think I appreciate you saying that. Um, <laughs> The data, right, is in a, a means to an end, as I see it, right? I think there's a reason why we're here talking about data-driven storytelling, right? The, it, it's the data that drives the story, but ultimately what we're trying to produce is a story, right? And the, the narrative of that has to be first and foremost focused, I think, on the people inside of it. I'll, I'll give you this as a two-part question. One, things that you see journalists do in stories about data that are that drive you crazy. And two, are there stories, important stories, significant stories that journalists aren't covering because the data and the numbers seem kind of overwhelming? So as for something that drives me crazy, this is sort of my, um, my pet peeve. So there's a lot of, I think, uncritical reporting on, say, um, data for social good, Mm -hmm. it it strikes me as being similar to the uncritical reporting on computer science for the social good that we saw maybe like five, six years ago. Um, Just sort of, you know, there's this new app, and since apps can be good, they will be good. (laughs) Um, I think that's true also of data science, right? Like you'll end up with, not, not to name names, but there's a particular project uh, that sponsors people to produce machine learning tools um, that will help in some social scenario. And every year there's a new class. Um, and every year, I, I've kept up with them a little bit, the projects don't really go anywhere. But when the projects are first released, they get a lot of good coverage and a lot of good press saying, hey, it's great that this is being done. And, you know, sort of because it's a 24-hour news cycle, the story sort of dies there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think it's important not just to point out that something's being done, but to stick with it and see that it eventually turns into something productive. And that drives me crazy. <laughs> Maybe the story that I wish was covered more, if it was more comprehensible, I guess, architecture of AI and how that architecture necessarily influences um, those models themselves, right? You look at stories about AI and they talk about AI thinking and they talk about the rise of killer robots. Uh, And this is less the complexity of the data, but I think more the complexity of the model. And I wish that people would spend more time talking about the actual architecture of AI and how they make decisions, you know, backfitting that whole thing. Because I think knowing more about the model itself, about, you know, say, GANs, would help people understand that this alarmist notion that AI is going to, you know, that your toaster is going to rise up and take over the household is sort of a fiction. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on data storytelling. Our guest is data researcher Nick Team. Now, Nick, I'm just going to ask you, you referenced 
uh, Gans in your response to the last question. I'm just going to ask you to explain who Gans is, because I, I know a Gans in communication that may not be the same Gans you're referencing. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are there's this uh, particular class of artificial intelligence algorithms called generative adversarial networks, uh, and they're very much in vogue. The, the idea is super, super cool. Um, basically, you have two neural networks, um, and you set them up to duel against one another, um, and in fighting back and forth, they get better. Uh, so this summer, I wrote an article for Slate interviewing a researcher at, I think, the University of Colorado by the name of Jeff Klim. Uh, and he used GANs to produce images that would look like, say, volcanoes or flowers. And these were totally original images that looked distinctly like that. And, and the way that he explained it to me that they worked is it, you can use this forgery analogy, basically. You have one network, one neural network that's a forger, and one neural network that is a, uh, a regulator, right? And the forger produces a forgery and tries to get it past the regulator. <laughs> regulator tries to catch it. If the regulator predicts that it's a forgery, he turns back and like the worst regulator in the world says, well, you know, actually the reason you messed up is because you didn't put these pixels in the top left corner of your image. Uh, so the forger gets better. And they go back and forth like this until the forger produces what are pretty close to um, impossible to detect forgeries. <laughs> so when you said architecture of AI and neural nets, you're, you're really raising the bar in, in terms of, <laughs> in, in, in terms of the, the conceptual framework that someone has to, to, to deal with us. So you said you're, you're frustrated with how that's conveyed. Well, here's your chance. <laughs> to, to take this to a, a to, to a larger audience. So how, how would you, what, what does it mean to say archi the architecture of artificial intelligence? What do you mean by that? And how would you describe our neural net in a, a, a you know, in a, in a tweetable form? Yeah, maybe two, two tweets. <laughs> uh, well, well, I think I would preface by saying I was hoping someone much smarter than me would be able to answer this question. <laughs> well, um, fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> But I guess maybe taking my best stab at it, um, what is important to say about neural nets, right, is that they're taking input data, transforming them in a series of ways, right? You have a particular nonlinear function um, and making predictions based upon that. That is obviously like a very cartoonish explanation. But when I talk about wanting the architecture or people to talk more about the architecture, I think what I'm trying to point out is that instead of saying that GANs think, right, or instead of saying that these AI are making conscious choices, to make it clear that there is this series of functions that get applied to some input data that necessarily produce a prediction. Uh, so you just have some algorithm behind the scenes. It's not some, some sentient, th sentient thing that's happening. Yeah, exactly. So you're, again, you're in this sort of terrain between uh, data and journalism, and you must be driven nuts by the sort of anti-science, anti-numbers, fake news crisis. Are there any, do you have any sort of insights on how to combat this and, and what, you do, what you do just over and above the, the work you're doing, which I think is probably the primary way? It's hard. It's really hard, right? I, I think this thing people talk about in terms of echo chambers, the fact that, yeah. you know, the people listening to this right now, for example, 
are, I think, people who are, you know, they already believe in the news that they get from certain reputable places, mm -hmm. or at the very least, they pick places we would agree on as being reputable. Um, so obviously, that's a huge issue. And how to combat echo chambers, I have no idea. Um, but I think maybe this goes back to the idea of science journalism as being entertaining versus being rigorous. And, mm -hmm. you know, it has to have the rigor. But so I'm reading a book called October by China Mieville. And it's a story of the 1917 Russian Revolution, which is something that you know normally I wouldn't read. But China Mieville is one of my favorite fiction authors, right? He's written some incredible postmodern fiction. He's a beautiful writer. Mm -hmm. And because of his beautiful writing, I've gotten interested in this topic that I otherwise never would have really examined. And I think to some degree, maybe one way out of this is to focus on the entertainment side of journalism, of course, doing it rigorously, right? But appealing to people across political spectrums on an entertainment level. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest values that entertainment journalism can bring to the table. How did you get to where you are now? So where did you start out in terms of your, your course of study and, and how did it evolve to this point? If, if we were advising some of our current students and they wanted to do what you're doing, what, what might you give them in terms of uh, the, the wisdom of your experience? <laughs> um, yeah, I've never heard it put as the wisdom. I've never heard it said that I had any wisdom, so it's nice to be in this seat, I guess. Um, how did I get here? So I started as a statistics major. My All my formal training is technical, so I have a bachelor's in statistics, one master's in applied math, and I just graduated with another master's in computer science. But I think I was lucky to have professors who emphasized the story side, or I guess, as it was put, the human side of statistics and math and all of their human applications. So I think the way I got here was through technical training, but being fortunate to have people who made me understand that you know, technical skills can be used in social fields. And how to do this? Uh, well, you know, apply for things you're not qualified for. <laughs> <laughs> the, there was no way I was qualified for this AAAS fellowship that I had this summer. Uh, but I applied and I got some good letters of recommendation and I guess got lucky and got it. And, you know, it really, really did change my life. So, yeah, I guess maybe that's my recommendation. So we're, at some point you learned how to write. So how did, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's funny enough something I haven't introspected on all that much. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, as far as, there's this saying, I guess, right, that if you don't have time to read, you don't have time to write. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the maybe training I got in writing was just from being an avid reader my whole mm -hmm. life. Um, I mentioned Cosmo Shalizi earlier. Reading his blog, um, Three-Toed Sloth, going through college, and you know his emphasis, I think, on the storytelling side of statistics really helped me become a better writer. And you know, obviously, I have to say, I worked at the Writing Center at Maryland helping graduate students um, you know, improve their journal articles to make them more legible. Mm -hmm. So the director of that 
Institute, Linda Macri helped me tremendously in terms of writing and in terms of giving me, I think, a language with which to describe how writing should be improved. Very good. Nick, we are just about out of time, but before we go, I do want to ask you uh, if you have recommendations for places you think people should be going to read good data storytelling. Um, I know a lot of us probably uh, read the stuff that the New York Times uh, produces and BuzzFeed does some really good work, but are there other underread spaces people should be exploring? Wow. Um, yeah, so my personal favorite is BuzzFeed. I think BuzzFeed just does an absolutely incredible job. Uh, but the other two is, I think, maybe my second or first favorite, depending on how you count it, is ProPublica. Uh, oh, ProPublica yeah. does mm -hmm. absolutely incredible data journalism. Their piece, um, Machine Bias, looking at how AI can bias uh, criminal sentencing along racial boundaries, I think is one of the best pieces I've ever read. So yeah, I think they would probably be my recommendation. Great, well, thank you so much. That's all the time we have this for this episode of Stats and Stories. Nick Team, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. That was great. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. <laughs> <laughs>